You remember last time we were in the book of James, James has ta- taught us something very important. As you live the Christian life, you're going to be confronted with temptation. It's built in. And the source of that temptation is the devil. God is not the source of it. God allows it to occur. God accomplishes his purposes through it, but it is not originating with God. God uses anything to do his work, including uh, those things that we might see that have no value whatsoever. God uses all things to do his work. Uh, the real goal is not for us to give in to the temptation. And James is convinced that the better that we, that we understand the temptations when they arise, the better chance there is we're going to make the right choice and not allow those temptations to become sin. Now, with that in mind, I'll look at verse 14. Uh, James is going to explain to us exactly how this temptation works and how temptation, uh, not sin in itself, but how temptation can become sin. Verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So, if we give in to some temptation, who is to blame? Uh, Do we blame our parents for not teaching us the skills that we needed to withstand temptation? Uh, Do we blame the preacher for not preaching hard enough on sin or not preaching on my particular sin hard enough to get me to change? Is it society's fault because they continue to present evil choices to us and images to us that only uh, make it more and more difficult for me to resist temptation? Who is to blame when I fall into temptation? Well, you are well aware you live in a society that is uh, full of blame. (laughs) They find all sorts of people to blame. Blame is passed freely unto others whenever there's a problem. In the eyes of our society, and this is no secret to you, in the eyes of our society, whenever somebody gets into some sort of a jam, it is always someone else's or something else's fault. It's never their fault. It's always somebody else. We live in a society that wants personal freedom without personal responsibility. And they'll do whatever they want to do, but they don't want to be held accountable for anything when things go wrong. That began in the garden. You remember that? Uh, The sin comes along, and what does Adam say? Adam says, the woman made me sin. And he confronts the woman, and the woman says, the serpent made me sin. And the finger pointing goes on. Well, you just see that same thing fleshed out every day in our society. God believes in personal freedom. We are not robots uh, programmed by God to do what he wants us to do. We are created with a free choice in every area of our lives. I realize there's theology that teaches against that, but that's not Bible. Bible says there is free choice in every area, but God does hold us responsible for the choices that we make. So when I sin, who is responsible? Look at the verse again. Every man is is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. There's the answer. When I sin, it is my fault. When I sin, it is my choice. Everybody sins when they are drawn away of their own lust into that sin. And so when I sin, I can't blame anybody but myself. My sin is my fault. And true repentance occurs when a person takes full responsibility for their own sin. I want you to go back, if you would, to the book of Psalms. Go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. I believe that what you find in Psalm 51 is probably the best example you'll ever find in Scripture of a true prayer of repentance. And I think it's worth us looking at this just for a second tonight. Uh, This is the prayer that David prayed after he sinned with Bathsheba in committing adultery and then had her husband murdered. And I want you to look at verses 1 through 4 of this psalm, Psalm 51, and I'm going to emphasize some words that you may choose to underline if that's that's certainly up to you. But if you underline in your Bible, you might want to underline these words. All right, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. 
and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only, have I sinned. Go down to verse 9. He says, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. David would not fit in real, in real well to this society that we're in today. Because David is not a man blaming circumstances or some other person for his sin. David is a man who realized that he was drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And by doing that, he fell into sin. Now, the church at large and the, our church in particular will have the power to do whatever God calls us to do when those who attend this church are willing to pray just like David prayed. <laughs> Identify their sin and say, Lord, it's my sin. It's my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. When we're willing to do that, God will begin to show us the power that he has for us to do what he's called us to do. I think this. I think we as a people, we as believers, are in need of true heartfelt repentance. That's what I think. I think God will bless us and God will bless our church when we choose not to blame anybody else for our sin or anything else for our sin. And instead, say as David said, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. When we'll do that, I believe the power of God will show onto this place because we're going to take a serious view of what sin is all about. So here's one of the truths we find from the book of James up to this point as far as this whole matter of temptation. And as we see what's going on among God's people today, uh, God wants his people to live holy, righteous lives. If you read through any of Paul's letters, you'll see that message come through over and over again. Read any of the New Testament epistles, for a matter of fact, and you'll find that message. God has a standard for us to live by, and God wants us to live according to that standard. And a violation of that standard, no matter how small or how large that might be, that thing is sin. When you violate God's standard, when I violate, violate God's standards, that's sin. And we can try to conceal it with some other label if we want to. We can try to make it respectable somehow. But the bottom line is, any violation of God's standard is sin, pure and simple. Now, since God wants us to live holy and God wants us to live righteous, and because God does not want to judge us for our sin, he is making it as clear as possible to us to identify what sin is and what causes it and how to avoid it. God makes it so clear that if a person sins, they have to ignore or push aside all of God's instructions and warnings to make that sin happen. It's very much like a person who ignores every road sign and every warning sign, letting them know that there's a bridge out. They just drive on right through and ignore all the signs and go careening over the cliff and into a ravine as a result of that. The signs were all there. That could have been avoided. They just chose to ignore all the signs and do what they wanted to do. And going into sin is the same process as that. Now, again, look at verse 14 and notice what he says. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own, look at the word, lust and enticed. So sin begins with lust. Now, lust is nothing more than a desire. Lust is nothing more than wanting something, having a desire for something. In a very few places of Scripture, that word is used to describe a desire that is not sinful. But in almost every time where it is used, where the Bible uses that word, it is a sinful desire that's being referred to. And so sin begins when I begin to seek after something sinful. When I begin to seek after something that violates God's righteous standard. And that lust starts me onto a path that can't end in sin if I allow it to go there. Now, because we are in the flesh 
and because of the desires of the flesh uh, become so commonplace to us and might seem right to us, sometimes we have a hard time deciding what is a sinful desire. Am I lusting after something, or is this something that's okay to desire? Uh, We might ignore it. We might try to justify it in some way. uh, But the majority of the time, we desire something. We know if it's sinful or not. But there are those times where we may not. And in those times, God gives us two resources that clarify for us if a desire we have is truly sinful or not. Uh, Go to Romans chapter 7. Go to Romans chapter 7. Here's the first way to know. And these are not going to be new to you. These are not going to be surprises to you. But I think it's worth reinforcing. Romans chapter 7. Look at verse 7. Romans 7, 7, Paul says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So very clearly, the first way to clarify a sinful desire is through the Word of God. When I desire something, the first thing I need to do is run that desire through God's book. Because again, God gives you the standard in His Word. If I pass every desire through this book, I'm going to clearly know if that desire is sinful or not. You know, I know we talk a great deal about God's word here. I hope we understand we don't read God's word on our own simply because we're told to. I hope we understand that we read the word of God because every practical thing that we need to know about how to walk as God wants us to walk is found in that book. (laughs) It's right there. That's where you're going to find it. So if I neglect the word of God, I'm only harming myself when I do so. So the first resource is the book God has given to us. Now go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and God will show you the second resource that he's given to us uh, to identify whether or not something we desire is sinful or not. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, and look at verse 16. He says, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I told you this before, but again, I'd say this for my own reinforcement. Uh, We need to begin every day saying, Lord, you need to take control of my life today. Holy Spirit of God, you need to control everything that I do today. I submit myself totally into your hands. I want you to control every part of my life. I want to walk in you today. (laughs) Because as we do that, God then identifies for us exactly where he wants us to go and will also identify for us where he doesn't want us to go. (laughs) Things he doesn't want us to do and things that he does want us to do. The Spirit of God lives inside you. The Spirit of God identifies for you what what a desire is, whether it's sinful or not. And that Spirit will work through our conscience and through the Scripture that we've read for that day, and it will help us to know if what we are desiring is in the will of God or outside the will of God. And that is especially important to know when it comes to choices which arise that may not be specifically identified in the Word of God as sinful or not sinful. Uh, As you are aware, as you read through your New Testament, God gives you lists in Scripture of sinful choices. He'll identify for us specific sins. There's several lists like that, especially in Paul's writing. But not every possible sin is listed in those lists. What God does do, however, is throughout the Word of God, give you godly principles to live by. And you take those principles, and when a choice arises, if you're walking in the Spirit, you take that principle, and you use that principle to identify whether or not this desire that I have is a sinful desire or if it's not sinful. God's Spirit will take those principles and apply those to that situation where you find yourself and you will clearly know if that thing is sinful or not. Now, you may choose to continue to do it, but now you know that it's a sin when you choose that. Uh, Sometimes we try to disregard those things. I know I hear Christians talk a lot about the gray areas, you know. Uh, The Spirit will identify those gray areas for you. (laughs) 
Uh, when the, with the Spirit of God, there are no gray areas. You'll know if it's a right choice or not. What you do about that is totally up to you, but you're going to know if it's a right choice or not. And so when he identifies that for you, we then have the choice to pursue that desire or not pursue that desire based upon what's revealed to us through the Word and through the Spirit of God. But here's the guarantee. If I walk under my own control and not under the Spirit of God's control, and if I don't listen when, when he convicts me, I will fall into fleshly lust every day. <laughs> It'll be a consistent thing in my life. If I choose to walk not under the Spirit's control, but under my fleshly control, I'm going to fall into sin many times during that day. And the reverse is also true. If I walk in the Spirit, if I allow His guidance, if I listen when He convicts me, I will avoid acting on those fleshly lusts that may arise. I'll avoid falling into sin as a result. And God will make that clear to you if you, choose, if you allow Him to do that. All right, go back to James now, if you would, and look at verse 15. Lust is the basis for our sin. Uh, verse 15, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So, the lust is the basis for the sin. Our choice to make our own determination as to what desires to follow will lead us into sin much more often than not. So, there's the progression. Lust, which leads to sin which leads to death. That is a law in the Word of God. God doesn't change His laws. We can't change God's laws. That is a law in God's Word. If I follow fleshly lusts by not identifying them or by not avoiding them when they show up, that will lead, to me, lead me to stepping outside God's standard of righteousness, and I will sin. And if I choose to make that choice, what's the end result of that? It's going to lead to death. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, to a couple of places in Scripture. Go to the book of Genesis. Uh, this law is so fixed that God gives us several examples in his word of how this law works. I'm not going to give you a uh, look at every example tonight. I'm going to look at three of them to, just to show you uh, how this thing is, regardless of what we think, it's true. So go to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Eve stood before that tree. God told her not to eat of that tree. And there she is standing before it. Look at verse 6 of Genesis, chapter 3. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired, desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her, unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Eve saw, there's the lust, she desired something. Eve took, there's the sin, uh, she took of something she was not supposed to take. Go back to chapter 2 now and look at verse 16. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely, what's the word, die. <laughs> there's lust, there's sin, and there's death. The first sin that came into the world followed the pattern that James identifies for us here in James chapter 1. Uh, go to the book of uh, 2 Samuel. I'm sorry, Joshua. Go to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7. Uh, this is the story of Ai. You might remember the story of Ai. God told, told jo uh, Joshua to go against the city of Ai and destroy it completely. They were not to keep anything out of that city. Anything that ex existed in that city, they were to destroy. But there was a fellow by the name of Achan... And he took of the spoil of that city for himself, didn't tell anybody he did it, took that stuff and buried it in his, in his tent. And God reveals to Joseph, or Joshua rather, that Achan had sinned. 
And here's what Achan has to say when he's confronted. Look at verse 21 of Joshua chapter 7. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Achan saw, there's the lust. He coveted, he desired, and he took, there's the sin. Drop down to verse 25, Joshua 7, 25. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. There's the death. He saw. There's the desire, the lust. He took. There's the sin. He was stoned. There's the death. Let me show you one more. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Looking at the sin of David with Bathsheba. Uh, look at verse 2, 2 Samuel 11, 2. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David rose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. I drop down to verse 4. And David sent messengers, messengers and took her. And she came in unto him and he lay with her. David saw her. There's the lust. David took her. There's the sin. Go to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12. A child results from this adultery that David committed with Bathsheba. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 18. And it came to pass on the seventh day the child died. There's the death. Lust, sin, death. Lust, sin, death. Lust, sin, death. Death. If God sets a law, God follows through on that law. That law is unchangeable. And if God says lust, sin, death, it will be lust, sin, death every time. Every time. Now, as we see here, the death can be a physical death. If a person persists in their sin long enough that they won't change that, God will kill them. Or that sin can have deadly consequences, uh, such as alcohol or drug abuse. But it can also be death to our joy or death to a clear conscience or death to a pure life or death to a mind at peace, or death to our testimony, or a number of other possibilities. Just know that if I persist in sin long enough, and I don't confess that sin and repent of that sin, that sin eventually is going to lead to death in one form or another. Romans 6.23, you all know it. The wages of sin is death. <laughs> death. There's another law that cannot be changed. It will not be broken. And I realize sin has been, uh, preaching on sin has been outdated in many places. And I realize there are believers who are so immersed in the world these days, they struggle to even know what sin is. And I'm not talking about the lost crowd. I'm talking about the saved crowd. <laughs> they don't have any idea what sin even is. It's my prayer that at least in our church, there will be a handful of believers who will not buy into the world's message. I hope that we as a church and the body of believers will not be put off or offended when the matter of sin is presented and preached on. God has not changed his stance regarding sin. We may change it. God hasn't changed it. Not in the least. And I hope we will take sin as seriously as God does, allow his word and his spirit to identify it for us, and make the choice to avoid getting involved in it. When it comes to, and when it does come, confess it and forsake it and get rid of it and don't go back to it. We just need believers. I believe this with all my heart in every church. I'll talk about our church. 
many believers in our church, how many are willing to do it, to take sin as seriously as God does. And it would change our church. It would change the individuals in our church if we choose to do that. Because I'm going to tell you something. Sin will destroy you in some way sooner or later. Death is always the result. All right. Go back to James now again. And look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, Do not err, my brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So James now contrasts the destruction that will come if we bring ourselves into sin to the gifts that God gives to us if we choose to live uh, in, his, in his plan and through his, in his will. Uh, bad things come because of the choices we make. Good things come only and solely because of the goodness of God. And James wants us to be clear about that. So he prefaces this whole thing with his thought in verse 16 where he says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. In other words, don't make the mistake of believing that any good thing that you have is from any other source. If it's a good thing in life, God is the source of that good thing. Now, James is addressing believers here, but Jesus Christ made a similar point uh, and included all people in it when he talked about this same thing. In Matthew 5:45, Jesus Christ says this. He says, speaking of God, he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, Jesus Christ says, all of creation uh, gains from God's goodness. Any good thing that happens to any person on this earth has any benefit to them whatsoever comes at the hand of God. God is the source of it. Listen to what Job says in Job chapter 12 and verse 10. Job says, in, speaking again of God, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Now get a hold of that. Job says, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the breath of all mankind is in the hand of God. And all God has to do is close that hand, and there's no more breath. <laughs> they suffocate because God takes the hand off of it. Mankind breathes because God gives them the breath to breathe. So the more encompassing truth is this. Whether a person believes in God or not, whether they acknowledge God or not, every good thing they have, including the breath that they breathe, comes from God. It comes from Him. They may use all His benefits. They may enjoy all the pleasures of creation, and they may think they have all those things by some chance or by their own efforts. The reality is they have what they have because God either gave it to them or allowed them to have it. But either way, he's in control of all of it. It's all his. Now, James speaks specifically of believers here, so he narrows the focus a bit when he talks about this thing. And to paraphrase what James says here, James says, believer, speaking to you and I now, don't ever think. Don't ever operate under the misconception that you have what you have through your own efforts, because you don't. And don't ever think you have what you have because you earned it or because you deserve it, because you didn't and you don't. <laughs> Realize every good thing you have, you have because God gave it to you. All of it. He is the source of every good gift that you possess. And I think sometimes we as believers just need to sit back and just realize how good God has been to us. That's why I like when we come here on Thursday nights, we talk about praises first. We need to be aware of how God is blessing us. <laughs> we can get so caught up sometimes in the, in the difficulties and the trials that we lose tra set, uh, track of the fact that God truly has been very, 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 very good to us. <laughs> very good to us. Now, all the world uh, has experienced God's goodness. But not all the world is God conscious. So they don't always attribute it, their, that goodness to God. You and I are God conscious. 
We are the first-hand recipients of the goodness of God. And so we of all people must be very careful never to attribute what we have to something else or to someone else. We must never think that we have what we have because of us. <laughs> and there are believers who think that. That's, that's faulty thinking. Uh, we somewhere in our hearts know better, and James reminds us of that fact. Now, I want you to see how James refers to, to the God here. Look at verse 17 again. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down. Look at the, the, the title, from the Father of lights. That's the only place in Scripture you're going to find God referred to in that way. Now, when he says that, he's talking about a couple of things, I believe. First of all, he's talking about a physical truth. And the fact is, God is the originator of physical light. Uh, Genesis 1, 14 through 16, uh, the physical lights are made, and God's the one who makes them. God makes them, and God identifies them. And life on earth is sustained because of the lights that God made. If those lights weren't here, uh, we wouldn't be alive today. Now, I realize clouds sometimes darken that light. Uh, it gets dark at night, and we, sometimes those, uh, those lights aren't there. But we, it's just that we don't see them. They're still there. They're still operating. And they're still doing what God designed for them to do. So included in these good gifts that James is talking about here are the physical lights that God has given to us to sustain us and keep us alive. But he's not only the father of the physical lights. He is also the father of the spiritual lights that exist on this earth. Uh, Jesus Christ came onto this earth. John the Baptist proclaims him in John chapter 1 and verse 7. And here's what he says. Uh, speaking of John, the same came for our witness to bear witness of the light with a capital L that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, capital L, was sent to bear witness of that light, capital L. He was the true light, capital L, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That light he's speaking of, obviously, is Jesus Christ. God is the father of that light, and that light came into this world to dispel the spiritual darkness that existed in the world before he showed up. So God also provides a spiritual light in his son, Jesus Christ. You know the verse well, Psalm 119, 105. You should know it. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, Solomon said in Proverbs 6:23, For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. God is also the source of the light of his word. He created that book for us and that word is a light to us. The word itself refers to us. The word refers to itself as a light. So God made physical light to sustain us. And God made spiritual light to sustain us. And there is no question, based just on that alone, that God truly is the one who gives all good gifts to us. And notice finally that in the last part of that verse, verse 17, he says, From the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, folks, that is a fantastic truth. Now, you can't get truth as much better than that. Because what he says there is, uh, he is comparing God to the physical lights that he's talked about there. And what he's saying is every light that exists in heaven varies in the quality and in the intensity of the light that it produces. It varies. Uh, stars don't all produce the same amount of light. Uh, there's novas and supernovas and even ultranovas that uh, have a varying intensity of the light they produce. There's planets that appear in the sky and those lights, those planets reflect the sun, but they reflect the sun in different degrees. And the intensity of our own sun depends upon its position uh, in the sky, uh, much colder in the wintertime, much warmer in the summertime. Uh, we have eclipses that are going to block the light of the sun, uh, some partially and some totally. I just read there's going to be an eclipse next April. A total eclipse of the sun is going to happen here. It won't occur again until 2099. We'll probably be in the millennium by then. So all of the lights that God created in some way vary. But God doesn't. <laughs> 
In God, there is no variables. You know what that means in our language? God never changes. God never changes. Who he is today, he was yesterday. Who he is today, he'll be tomorrow. What he told you in the past is true now. What he's told you now is going to be true in the future and on into eternity. Folks, that is a great truth. God does not place any barriers between us. God casts no shadows upon us. Any barrier that exists between us and God are there because we place them there. God wants us to be in his complete and total light every moment of every day. And the only time that becomes a problem is when I choose to block that light by my own sin or by my resistance to hear from him and do and miss the light that he provides as a result. You know what I need to do? I need to thank God for his immutability. And that's just a big theological word that means, means that God never changes. <laughs> thank God that he never changes. Because, folks, there's nothing else in this life except God and his word that you can say that about. Everything else changes. Whatever your life is right now, it can change just like that. You can walk out this door and your entire life changes. We have folks who walk to the doctor feeling great. They come out with a diagnosis they never expected. Just like that. Life changes on a dime. God never changes. I am in a relationship with the one person in this universe who will be the same tomorrow as he was today. And what he's promised to me, that promise will stand regardless of what I do or how I react to it. That promise will always be the same for me. And because of that, folks, you of all people have a security and a stability that nothing in this world can shake. And that's why we walk out your door and mingle with your people around you. They need to see that. Because they don't have it. They watch this world go on, and they're scared to death about what's going to happen next. I don't worry about what's going to happen next. I know what I'm waiting for. <laughs> Anything else is just, you know, going to get in the way until we finally get there. We have a security and a stability in this life. And you have a security and a stability that's going to take you right on into eternity. <laughs> Praise God for his unchangeableness. Praise God he is the father of lights in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. <laughs> what a great God we serve. Let's stand.